From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. The other day, I was recording a little girl named Jackie. Jackie is four years old now. After we were through, I thought I'd take her for a little walk. We went down to the street and started walking up the block. The sun was setting behind us. It was a very nice day. As we were walking, I was holding Jackie's hand. She tugged on my hand and said, You're stepping on my shadow. I couldn't believe it, and I asked her to repeat what she said. You're stepping on my shadow. My mother used to tell me, when things are going well with your kids, take all the credit. Because when they're going bad, you're going to get all the blame. The body of work that's been written, produced, and pontificated about mothers, Oedipus, Freud, Dr. Spock, to name but a famous few, is, shall we say, the mother load. So frankly, who needs one more hour of it? I'm Gwen Maxi. Today on ReSound, we devote the show to a less explored but equally important subject, dad. Three producers turn their microphones to the paternal. They explore a dad who's a shrink, a dad who spent 23 years in prison, and a little Hungarian dad who came to this country after World War II, married, and had four kids, the youngest of which was me. What's the point of being a radio host if you can't slip your mom or dad on the air once in a while? Today on ReSound, dads. Stay with us. Talk just normally because the mic is right there, and you oh, don't need you don't need to hold anything up to your face or anything like that. Uh, and you know what? You 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 can you know you can record letters or no, that whatever. Has batteries, you want. It? It's got batteries in it now. Janine Cornelow has won an Emmy. She's worked for CNN, MTV, CBS, NBC, and Paramount. But all that television, gratifying and lucrative though it may be, just isn't radio. She decided to try her hand at an audio documentary, and when she did, she chose for a topic one of the subjects most close to her, but also most far away, her dad. She calls this story Family Sentence. My dad spent 23 years in prison. He started off as a Cuban revolutionary and later ended up a convicted felon in the United States. We only talked once in the last 16 years. Then, out of the blue, I got an email from him. He wrote, I'm home. Your biological father, Hector. We didn't have a lot of photographs or stories about my dad, so I decided to go visit him and bring a recorder. I wanted to have something of him to hold on to. I felt I had to move quickly in order to capture him. In my mind, he could end up back in prison again, or simply disappear, or even die. I wanted to bring his voice home to my brothers, Hector, Carlos, and Danny. So, the escape. We got it. For instance, here's my dad telling me about his attempt to escape the L.A. County Jail after he was picked up on bombing charges in 1972. So we start sawing through the windows. We put some soap. We put some dirt. While the guards are over there, they, they don't know what we're doing. We cut it through this window. We put some soap. We put some dirt. Sometimes my dad is a little hard to understand because of his accent. And to make things worse, I never recorded anyone before and was shy about putting the mic too close to him. And we are ready to go through the last window. And here they come and call my name next day. Hector Coronel, yeah. Pack up, you're leaving for Chino. We didn't grow up with a lot of facts about my father. It was more like myths. We all believed he was a revolutionary hero. 
If you listen closely to our exchange, you will see how embarrassingly real the myth of my dad was to me, even as an adult. You know, I'm, I am bionic. You're bionic? Violent. Oh, okay. <laughs> I you said bionic and that may have been hard to catch, but I thought my dad said he was bionic, not violent. It's so clear in my voice that it was entirely within the realm of possibility that he was bionic. But I wasn't alone in this myth. The myth was part of our family folklore. And you can hear, my father likes the myth too. But I have just told you, I, I am a superhero. You don't believe I don't believe you because I know that's not true. It is true. Nobody is a hu superhuman. I am a superhero. <laughs> in your own mind. In my own mind, yes. I am a superhero in my own mind. That's where I live. This is my reality. You might not see it that way. But that's the way I see it. San Quentin must have been scary. It's nothing scary. It's not. It's not. Criminals all want to do right. Criminals want to be straight. Criminals have, you know, the same ethics that people have. No, it's different. It's different because... The hierarchy is different. The, the, no, the ethics are different. the hierarchy is there. It is yeah, the hierarchy is different, but it's there, but it's different. I sound like I've been in prison all my life. Like I'm an accomplice. But when you grow up a kid of a long-term incarcerated prisoner, you do feel that way. Children, like my brothers and I, take an invisible journey into prison. And it's a journey that nobody acknowledges. I can hear my voice that I want him to see that I was in prison. I was on the cell block too. But when you walked into San Quentin, you were nervous. You're just playing it off that you weren't. But it's not true. I know it's not true. There, there were dark moments. There were dark moments where your mind plays upon you, but it's not what you think. It's not as dangerous as you think. It's not as threatening as you think. It's not. You're not just saying that to me. I'm not saying that. I'm but there, there were times when you were scared. Experiences. Okay. They were not scared. I wasn't scared. People I was scared, scared for you. I was scared for you. As a kid, I imagined that the most difficult moment in my father's life was when the judge sentenced him to 30 years in prison. I used to revisit that scene in my head, play it out, how he must have felt as he looked at the jurors, him walking off in handcuffs and regrets. I asked him how he felt in that exact moment. I wanted to know if he was as devastated by a 30-year conviction as I was. Were you scared? Were you no. Were you sad? Were you sad? No, no. I wasn't neither scared nor sad nor... I was nothing. It's just the next step in my life. The next step in my life. 
No big deal. Uh, I, I see where you can't grasp this, this concept. The medals of a revolutionary are prison and death. These are the medals of a revolutionary. So to me, 30 years in prison was a medal. So you were the, you were smug. You were probably feeling like, oh, this is this, this is, is my badge this of honor. Is, there you go. How long, when you're wearing that badge of honor, does it kind of disintegrate when you're Never. in prison? Never. That's not the answer I hoped for. My expectations went more like this. I thought we would share a nice bonding moment here. We were supposed to reveal this deep concern about one another's welfare over those 23 years. Like the way a family's love should transcend prison gates and time. I figured we'd give each other a nice hug at this point. And at the end of our meeting, I would take this recording back to my brothers and they would all melt. But our conversation doesn't go that way. Instead, my father tells me he wished he told the judge. It's too little. 30 years is too little. If I were you, I would give you life. Really? You thought... Really. I, 30 years was nothing. I, I, I don't know what he was... He was... He was a fool. The judge was a fool. This is officially the worst reunion in history. It seemed to me, although I had no idea how bad it was going to get, our conversation couldn't get much worse. So I switched gears and decided to ask him all the questions I've ever wanted to. My father always maintained he didn't detonate the bomb, which was the crime he was convicted for. And I finally get the chance to ask him the question that our family never talked about. Were you guilty? I'm sentenced for a detonation of explosive in a place of business in Los Angeles. I do uh, a couple of years of over there. Oh, I'm not guilty of the elements because I did not place the bomb that they charged me with, but I'm guilty because I am the one that is teaching them how to put, place the bombs you know, and tell them where to put them. You know, so I'm guilty. I'm guilty. To hear him take responsibility for the crime tells me that he's being real with me, at least in this moment. I figure this would be a good time to ask about my mom. She never talked much about him, and I wanted to know about their relationship. They're still, you know, I always love her and she'll always love me because we were, we were young and we were in love. And that's, that's a lifetime love that lasts forever. My mother met my father in Miami during the 1950s when they were both teenagers. They fell in love and moved to Havana and married. After the Cuban Revolution, they returned to the United States and had four children. I always wondered how a man so obsessed with Cuba could have fallen in love with an American woman. Castro took over the government, and I went back to Cuba and left Joan there in Miami. And she followed me to Cuba. And then we married. Well, why did you get married? I, I didn't want to, but she was pregnant, and, you know, all those Catholic uh, bullshit, you know, and she wanted, you know, those, those problems. I, I want her to have an abortion. I told her I wasn't, a, I wasn't a good husband, and I wasn't a good father, and I wasn't, you know. But she, she wanted to have a baby and have a marriage and all that good stuff. And that happened and happened and over and over, and, and I would go there and disappear and spend time, and she spent 10 years of that. 
terrible life where I would go, have a pregnant, and disappear. As I listen to my father describe how he wanted to abort me and my three brothers, I feel like I'm floating outside my body. There must be other parents in the world that considered aborting their children, but parents don't tell children these things. My father doesn't think twice about telling me I was unwanted. There is no pause before he tells me, no hesitation after. The fact doesn't flutter around the room like a long-buried secret. I think how strange for him to have this exchange with a child he didn't want. I can only imagine for him this must feel like a small haunting from a ghost child. You never came back to her. She was chasing you all over. You never said, oh, take me back, take me back. Yes, I said, take me back, take me back, and then she would come back, and, mm-hmm. and nothing has changed, and then she starts again, and I'm going somewhere, and mm-hmm. I'm a bum. I'm an irresponsible man that did not care about anything but what I was involved in. And she didn't see it, and I told her a hundred times. A hundred times. That's a lot of times. I suddenly feel it's not just about my mom. It's our whole family. I'm glad that she married again because I spoiled her life because I wasn't terrible to her. But I tell you, this is already lived. We lived this and we had our thing. And it, you know, I can't tell you. I don't remember hearing the emotion in his voice when I recorded him that night. And now every time I hear it, it moves me. So what makes a man do that? I have no idea. It was a turmoil time in my country. And I was... What makes you do that? It's turmoil for a lot of men, but a lot of men don't do that. Oh, if you, if you had to live your life again, you'd want to spend 23 years in prison. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. It's not, it's, it's not where you are. It's what you do with where you are. I am a rogue model. I am a rogue model for revolutionaries. And this is a different breed of people than home folks. Home folks are something else. These people are loving and they're home and they're with the children and they're there when they get sick and they're there when they have to go to school and they're when they have the chats and then they're there and they're... That's not me. What do you think the qualities of a revolutionary are? Qualities of revolutionaries? Three. Three qualities of revolutionaries, selfless, Selfless, dedicated, dedicated, and willing to give it all up at a moment's notice. That sounds like my mother. Dear Janine, 
How's my beautiful daughter? I hope that you had a nice Christmas. I must ask your forgiveness for not answering right away. But as I told your siblings, I have been away from the office, and there is no place in this prison I can write a letter peacefully. I must tell you that I miss you very much. Here in the prison live many cats. They grow up by themselves. We only feed them occasionally and never take them to our living quarters. This is not allowed, of course. Some kittens are wild and some are friendly and some are half wild and half friendly. There is one particular cat of this last type that reminds me of you. She resembles your personality as I remembered it. I call her Janine Marie secretly, of course, so other people don't know that I'm lonely and that I miss you. Funny how sentimental your dad can be at times. I hope you don't resent that I've compared you with a kitten. It is meant to be a compliment. Well, Janine, my love, there is not much more that I can tell you at this time. So I will be a bore and tell you to be good and to behave. Hope to see you next summer. Perhaps. Love, H. My father was born the only son of a Cuban revolutionary in Havana in 1938. I look at family photographs hard. I get in close. I think about the moments that bookend the frozen looks. I used to do this. I used to look for clues about my father's life in the few photographs I have of him. Wondering about his relationship with his parents, his upbringing in Cuba, and the myths that shaped his life. Recently, I picked up a book called Cubans in America. Inside was a picture of my grandfather and father in jail. The caption said that U.S. authorities arrested them in 1958 while attempting to sail to Cuba to overthrow Batista's government. My father has a hard time recalling the exact charges from 45 years ago. The charges were violation of the, of the international law, you know, an international law to, uh, you know, you're not supposed to go invade another country from here. That law. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's against the law. Uh, that's against, you cannot invade another country from this country. That's against the law. In this photograph, my father has his hand on his father's shoulder. He's 17 years old. His face is hidden in the photograph by his dad's profile. I wonder if you didn't know that they were father and son, you might miss the small tenderness in the hand, the way they are standing so closely. Or maybe that's what I want to see. Maybe someone else would clearly see my father hidden in his own father's shadow. Abuelo was a man. He was, you know, he was a great patriot and a great revolutionary and very strict. And it was my worst enemy. I came with him when I was 17 years old. I came to exile with him. And uh, we went to train as uh, guerrilla fighters in Dominican Republic in 1956. And he was one of the commanders. And he made my life pure hell. <laughs> Why is that? Because he would pick on me all the time. I would have to do all the daily work. And I would have to work harder than anybody else. I never had no recognition. <laughs> How do you think he felt when you went into prison with your badge of 30 years for being a rebel? I have no idea, you know? He, 
I don't think I think he he's not judgmental. I don't think so. I don't think he was judgmental. I think he you know he took it as you know. I don't think he. I don't I don't know what to tell you, but I don't think he. This is the first time my father has trouble expressing himself all night. He's stuck. He struggles to find the words about his own father, even 20 years after his dad's death. His voice gets gentler, like a boy. I don't think it uh, upset him or, or bothered him. Or he knew, you know, that that's the way it is because, you know, he was a revolutionary. I don't, I don't know, because he was my father. So I guess he might have been sad that it happened to me. And maybe even mad that it, I made it happen to me. I, I didn't follow his, uh, you know, his teachings. I was more dishonest, and basically a rogue. You know. He was more decent. I try to imagine my grandfather and father sitting in a prison yard together. I remember meeting my dad for the first time in a prison yard. Those trips always felt important and special. It was like going to church. I got all dressed up. I was really looking forward to reminiscing about those visits. I know that might sound strange. Most people recall family vacations or camping trips. But prison was our common ground. And I wanted to go back over all the little details. The first thing I wanted to know was his impression of me. And then I remember walking in for the first time. Do you remember seeing me in that prison yard when I was five? Or do you remember meeting me? No. That's terrible. Terrible. My father and I don't seem to have one shared memory. And every time I show him, how he's impacted my life. He shows me how I've been erased off his. I feel like we're circling around a story that's disappearing as quickly as it's written. It's like writing on steam glass. You know, you people were not real, were not into my my life. When you my say you people, what do you mean? You, you or my mother or my sister or my family. They were not in my life. My life was 30 years in prison. But there was no, you know, no, uh, like, guilt or desire to go with you or nothing like that. Or no missing anything because there was really nothing to miss. Because I was irresponsible and, you know, not at all father or husband or son or nothing like that. So what did you think when you saw us, your children? What were you thinking? Were you thinking, who is this strange person, little person? No, I knew there was you, my daughter, and I know my sons. And I couldn't do nothing for you. So what's the use of, you know, having, oh, I wish I was there. I wasn't there. I was where I was. He asked me what I thought of him during our prison visits. It was one of the few questions he asked me all night, 
and I sensed it wasn't easy for him, because he jokes that I probably didn't want him as a father. And what did you think? I thought I was nervous. I was like, oh, I was nervous. <laughs> I don't want this, Dad. No, I was nervous to meet you, because I had never met you that I could remember. So, and I thought, oh, there's Dad, I remember way. you with your kinky hair, with your hands thrown up from the uh, crib, asking to be uh, taken. That, that's my memory of you, and that's my first memory of you. Very nervous to come in to meet you because I wanted to impress, you know, I wanted to impress, you know, and I, you know, I was afraid that you wouldn't think I was cute. I remember that being my, or you wouldn't think I, you know. What I'm trying to say is that I was afraid I didn't look Cuban enough. I looked Anglo, I didn't speak Spanish, and I didn't understand the culture. But what I really wanted to ask was, did he see himself in me? I'm afraid he'll say no. I'm afraid he'll say yes. But, but it's really unnecessary, because it's just a blood thing. You are my daughter, I am your father, and that's it. When I saw my father on this trip, he was waiting to pick me up at the airport. I recognized him from far away. It was the way he was searching the faces of the people walking toward him. It reminded me so much of our walks toward each other in the prison yards, not knowing what each other would look like in the sea of faces. It had been 16 years since I saw him on the outside of prison. I tried to walk slowly. I remember wanting to remember this walk. It felt like a gift to have a chance to walk toward him again in this life. He looked much more frail than I remembered in prison. Wide-eyed, ethereal, and beautiful in the way that people turn out to be as they grow older. We hugged for a long time, and I told myself not to let go first, to hold on even if I wanted to let go. I could see that he was emotional, shy even. I saw none of the bravado I hear on this tape. Having a parent in prison is a terrific... It's a handicap for your development as a human being and a citizen. Mm. And what else? Mm, I don't think it's a handicap necessarily having a parent in prison. I just think it's a very emotional thing what for children because you worry about that parent, you know, if they're being abused or if they're being hurt. But I have just told you, I am not being abused. I abuse people. Yeah, but I don't believe you. To unravel my father's myth would be like taking off a bandage that we've been wrapping him in for 30 years. To remove it would force us both to see the cuts and bruises it protects. I am a destroyer to rebuild. And just now I know how to rebuild and I'm too tired to destroy. <laughs> These days, he spends most of his time working on building his garden, living a quiet life with his wife, Teresita. 
I find I'm relieved that he is looked after and loved by her. And I finally get up the nerve to say what I came here to say. I came to deliver a message on behalf of my brothers and myself. But hearing this exchange makes me cringe. The words feel so awkward, like broken teeth falling out of my mouth. Even though he tries to drown me out, and I crack and stumble over the word mattered, it's finally been said to him after 23 years. But No, but I understand what you're saying as far as goals for, you know, for Cuba, but I just feel like it was really ego-driven. It's about machismo, and it's about filling your ego, and, and, you know, it was about being a hero in a movie in your own head, when the reality was That's there's true. abandonment. That's you abandon things that really That's mattered true. and That's their true. futures. That's true. That's true. Uh, but that's the way it goes. I'm not the only one, and I won't be the last one. But you're the only that's one the to me. That's the way things I know. I am sorry. What can I tell you? I I'm know sorry. you're sorry. I hate, I hate to see you suffer. I hate to see your eyes get all watery. I hate it. But this is all water under the bridge. And I am, you know, I am sorry, but this is the way things happen. For a second, I feel he sees me. And I see him as he is. I think back to the last time I saw my father in prison, 10 years ago. Prison visiting rooms are where the condemned and the abandoned enter to meet and examine one another. And like my father and me, they sometimes feel like they switch places. The condemned feel like the abandoned, and the abandoned feel like the condemned. When my dad walked out of prison this time, the part of me that stayed with him followed him out. Are you happy? Yes. I'm happy. Are you happy? Sometimes. Well, that's it. That's life. Family Sentence was produced for Transom.org by Janine Cornelow and Vicki Merrick. Janine is currently working as a supervising story producer for NBC's daily docu-soap series, Starting Over. So, I know we're not your mom, or your dad, but would it kill you to write us once in a while? Send us your emails at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Rest assured that as soon as I can, I will make tapes and send them to you. I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. When producer Jesse Brown tells people that his dad's a psychiatrist, the most common response is a raised eyebrow and this sentence. Oh, so that explains it. 
children of psychiatrists, like it or not, can have a certain label that follows them around, even if psychiatry has never even really been a part of their life. The profession seemed pretty mysterious to Jesse Brown as he grew up. Armed with the microphone, however, he decided to unravel this mystery once and for all in our next story, My Incredible Shrinking Father. If you want to be a psychiatrist, there are a couple of things you have to be able to put up with. That's my dad speaking. He's a shrink. It's a totally solitary uh, occupation. It is totally solitary. And the other thing you have to be able to put up with is to be able to acknowledge that you don't know. In fact, there's nothing that you will know for sure. He's talking about his patients, how he can never be completely sure that he's offering them the right kind of help. Psychiatry is an inexact science, which may be why I've never been able to really get my head around it. In fact, I don't have a clue what my dad does all day. I've been at it for 34 years. Perhaps my father's take on it was uh, really illustrative of what was going on then. When I went to tell him, I came to him, I said, Dad, you know, I'm going into psychiatry. I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And my father, in his uh, Russian-Yiddish accent, said to me, does that mean you're still going to be a doctor? A lot of people seem confused or curious about psychiatry, and they tend to assume that as a therapist's son, I can help explain it to them. But that's not really the case. You see, I've never been in therapy myself, and it's not the kind of job my dad ever brought home with him. You don't really ask a psychiatrist how their day has been. They're not allowed to tell you. Any information I get is totally incidental. For instance, sometimes my dad will say something completely out of character. Something like, I understand that homosexuals are fond of that Justin Timberlake singer. And I'll ask him, did a patient tell you that? And then he'll change the subject. But tonight, my dad and I are relaxing in a Manhattan hotel bar with a couple of drinks. And for the first time I can remember, I figure I've got a chance of getting him to open up about his job. Really, I shouldn't tell you anything. Here's what I do know. My dad has some patients who he's known longer than he's known me. And he has other patients who come only once. Sometimes a patient he's known for years will stop seeing him without saying why. It could mean that their problems are solved, or at least under control, and that my dad succeeded in his job. They could be switching to another doctor. They could be giving up, or worse. I have some patients that I will see until either I'm dead, they're dead, or I'll be out of practice. It occurs to me for the first time that my dad's job isn't just mysterious, but probably very lonely. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think psychiatrists are a pretty sad lot, by and large. <laughs> a bunch of sad characters. It's not an easy field to be in. That's why I bake bread. See, when I bake bread, <laughs> I knead it, and uh, then I put it in the oven for exactly the same amount of time that it takes me to have one psychoanalytic session, 50 minutes. But at the end of that time, I do have a loaf of bread, and I can tell you whether it's been done or not. And I can taste it, and other people can enjoy it with me. I can't say the same for a, for a psychiatric session. It bugs me that my dad is so casual about this. I'm perplexed by the way he keeps his professional life in a private box, especially when his professional life is so personal. I think about the hundreds of people he's come to know intimately, but who he can never call up just to chat with, or have lunch with, or introduce to his friends or family. These people come and go from his life, 
and he can't say a word about them. If it were me, I think it would drive me crazy. I think that my relationship with them is that of a professional. It's not the same as having a friend. When you have a friend, you spare your friend. You spare them certain things. My dad's a fairly emotional guy, and I have trouble buying the idea that he finds it so easy to isolate his feelings from such intense relationships. I ask him if a patient has ever fallen in love with him. It would be uh, a pretty sorry psychiatrist with two heads and three eyes who never had a patient who uh, fell in love with him. These answers are totally unsatisfying to me. What I want to know is what it's like for him, personally, to do what he does. As usual, he's willing to share his theories about his chosen profession, but not his feelings or experiences. I still really have no idea what he does all day, and he won't tell me. And that's why I've come with him to New York City for the annual conference of the American Psychiatric Association. I'm hoping that here, I may finally come to understand what it's really like to be a shrink. Of course, my dad thinks I'm wasting my time. The only way for you to find out would be either for you to become one or to, or to be in therapy with one. I don't feel like I got a reason to go to see a shrink, but you know what? Tomorrow we'll go to this conference and I'll see 20,000 shrinks. And you won't be any the wiser. The next day we show up at the registration hall and the place is mobbed. Psychiatrists from all over the world are here, socializing, gossiping, rifling through the oversized tote bags that come with their $355 registration tags. My dad and I split up for the day. I have to decide which therapist I'm going to see first. I've always said that for all I know, my dad might as well be in the mob. So it seems fitting to start with this guy. I'm Glenn Gabbard. I'm Brown Foundation Chair of Psychoanalysis and Professor of Psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I have worked with the psychiatric consultant of The Sopranos on HBO. Dr. Gabbard also wrote a book about the show called The Psychology of the Sopranos. He's a prominent figure in his field and is frequently asked to advise Hollywood productions about psychiatry. Most of what I picture when I think about psychiatrists comes from movies and TV shows. I asked Dr. Gabbard if I'm getting the right idea. Well, first of all, it's virtually hopeless to try to correct Hollywood distortions on psychiatry. The female psychiatrist is always a unfulfilled ice queen who has no life and is a workaholic. And then a handsome male patient comes into her life, sweeps her off her feet, makes her blossom into a, quote, real woman, end quote, and she gives up her practice or is transformed by the male patient. That's one stereotype. There's also the evil psychiatrists like Hannibal Lecter who prey on their patients and eat them in the case of Hannibal Lecter. Although there's nothing in the ethics code that says you can't eat your patients, most of us would still say that's unethical behavior. So if Hollywood can't be trusted, then what's the real story? I asked Dr. Gabbard to describe a day in the life of a typical therapist but he tells me that my question is impossible to answer. First of all, there's apparently no such thing as a typical therapist. There are supposedly over 400 types of therapy. Some of them are rather uh, marginal that we wouldn't necessarily consider good treatments, but even with the mainstream types of therapy, you have family or marital therapy, group therapy, then you have individual psychodynamic therapy, individual cognitive therapy, individual interpersonal therapy, and individual behavior therapy, which are very different. 
I'm embarrassed to admit that I don't even know which of these my dad practices. But does anybody besides psychiatrists understand these differences? Do patients even know what they're getting? Often, says Dr. Gabbard, they'll skip the whole confusing business and just try to get some pills. Concerta, C-O-N-C-E-R-T-A. Paxil CR, Welbutrin XL, and Lamictal. The product we're here with is Seroquel. Quietiapine fumarate. Abilify. Provigil, Actic, and Gabitrol. Zyprexa. Azapoclone. Symbiax. Effexor XR. Zyrum. Stratera. Zyprexa. I'm speaking to sales reps from the world's largest drug companies. They've set up gigantic booths here at the APA's exhibition hall. It's a vast room, and it's packed. Everywhere I look, there are huge, shining plastic signs, the kind you usually see outside of fast food joints. Only these have words like Paxil and Wellbutrin on them, instead of McDonald's or Taco Bell. The sales reps tell me the names of their drugs, but not much else. Here's what they say when I ask them what their drugs do. Um, am I allowed to... This is the press, should I... Well, you are from the press, so unfortunately I'm going to have to refer you to some, uh, someone else in our company. You know what, I'm... Um, I can't talk with you. Who are you? I'd rather not say. Uh, right now, I can't. I can direct you to our uh, PR department if you'd like. We need, we need to send you to public relations. <laughs> I put my mic away and blend in with the psychiatrists. Suddenly, smiley, attractive women are telling me all about the exciting benefits of their psychopharmaceuticals. Hi, would you like to take the Xanax challenge? Just fill out this fun quiz. Are you ready? Question one, does Xanax XR provide sustained efficacy for four hours, 24 hours, or 12 hours? Did you guess 24 hours? Then you get a free cordless mouse. Oh, you missed it? Well, you still get the mouse. Every booth is giving away these free little gifts. The APA guidelines state that promotional items can't be worth more than 10 bucks. So there are a lot of personalized pens, mouse pads, keychains, and trinkets. It's hard to imagine why psychiatrists, who tend to make pretty good money, would even want this stuff. And yet, doctors are lined up by the dozen to get their hands on it. Some people are hauling three or four big tote bags in each hand, all stamped with drug company logos and stuffed with cheap plastic toys. It's sort of like going to a carnival. The plush moose you won at the ring toss seemed important at the time, but I wonder how many brain-shaped Nerf stress toys are going to be left in Manhattan hotel rooms after everyone goes home. It's also like the Midway in that I'm starting to feel a little sick. I've spoken to half a dozen psychiatrists, and none of them have been able to tell me anything that remotely helps me understand my dad's life at work. I've gone to seminars about mental conditions I can't pronounce, and others that seem a little flaky, like something called, I am a fact, not a fiction. I take a pass on how to use handheld computers in psychotherapy and decide at the last minute to skip a lecture on the way of yoga and herbs in the treatment of depression. After a couple more days, I'm tired. I try to talk with my dad again, but get nowhere. Instead, he turns the tables on me. I'm getting from you a sense of frustration. Uh, you claim that it has to do with uh, my being somewhat stilted uh, with you in my responses, which may be uh, correct, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think you're a little disappointed that there isn't more to it, some kind of uh, witchcraft or something involved in the field. It's really very straightforward. It's not that much of a mystery, and, you know, it probably has been going on 
much longer than the period of time that we've had people designated to be psychiatrists. It's, it's not uh, that much of a weird interpersonal transaction where people go to other people uh, to uh, uh, help them to find out something about themselves. I think you're, that uh, you want some mysteries that I don't think exist in psychiatry. You're, you're so wrong. It's just the opposite. I mean, if anything, I want, I want it to be decoded and demystified. I don't want there to be a secret trick. I mean, I feel like um, the, the best way I can... If I wasn't frustrated before talking with my dad, I sure am now. As always, he somehow twists things so the topic turns to me. If I want a cup of coffee, he'll ask me why I feel that I need one. Actually, that's not really true. He wouldn't ask me. He'd tell me. Oh, you've got to have a coffee, do you? Can't seem to function without a little help. I've heard people complain about psychiatrists who only ask open-ended questions, like, how do you feel about that? Those people are lucky. It's much more annoying when someone claims to know you better than you know yourself. Especially when they're right. After I calm down a little, I ask myself, what am I really doing here? Is it psychiatry that I'm interested in, or is it the way that having a psychiatrist for a father has affected me? I flip through the huge APA schedule and look over the hundreds of lectures and seminars going on over the next few days on every psychiatric topic imaginable. I realize that I don't want to go to any of them. I don't want to talk to any more psychiatrists. Instead, I turn to Thomas Mader, who wrote a book called Children of Psychiatrists. He's interviewed almost 300 psychiatrist kids, and, of course, he's a shrink's kid himself. Both his parents were therapists. I figure he may be the one person around I can actually talk to about this. You know, I, I don't imagine that proctologists' children or insurance salesmen's children are as interested as we are in their parents' jobs. So. Gosh, I sort of hope not. <laughs> do, do, do you think so? <laughs> no, I don't think so. It, it is an unusual profession. And I think that it's a very mysterious profession growing up as a child. I, I don't know what your experience was, but I know a lot of other people said that when they talked to their parents about what they did, the, their parents would say things like, oh, well, I do the same thing for patients as I do for you. And that's kind of hard for a kid to grasp. There's this whole strange world of phantom siblings, almost, who are out there for unknown reasons uh, and what, what they do behind closed doors with your parents. And, and also, why is the door closed? What is it that's happening in that room? And why is it so secretive? And why do people who are grown-ups and who are successful in their lives, uh, why are they obliged to, to skulk around under cover of secrecy to talk to your parents about something? It's very disconcerting. From the hundreds of psychiatrist children that you've interviewed, would you say that um, I'm normal to be so concerned with this? No, I think it's fascinating. That's, that's what drove me to, to write a book about it. I've always found that, that my way of thinking about things and exploring things is writing about them. And uh, so it was, it was the curiosity about, is there anything to that? I mean, is why I am the way I am, however it may be, related directly or indirectly to the profession of my parents? Where in this, this kind of murky mix is, is the truth? And I, it, it fascinated me as a question. And since uh, I had never and never have been inclined to go into therapy myself as, as a patient, it intrigued me that I might be able to use uh, the excuse of writing a book. And so my way of doing it was to do uh, quasi-objective research by interviewing other people and seeing what their experiences had been and then how I might be able to relate them back to myself and how they might shed light on what experiences I had had. You, you know, it's funny because the way you describe it, it sounds like this is your form of therapy. It is in a way, I'm sure. I, I also have, have never uh, been in therapy myself. It's a very peculiar situation for some people to be in a psychiatrist or psychoanalyst family. 
you're aware that this is somebody who is extraordinarily powerful in some way, who is consulted by people. It's it's a kind of priest-like or god-like situation to be in. And you, by virtue of being the child of this person, you haven't really done anything to deserve it, but you're a member of the inner circle. And it can feel uh, demeaning to suddenly be cast into the other role where you actually have to surrender that position and humbly go into the office of some therapist and be like anybody else. But at least you're exploring it, so that's a good sign. <laughs> I feel like I'm in therapy for the first time. Well, the nice thing is at least you don't have to pay for therapy the way you're doing it. That boy needs therapy. Psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Purely psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Lie down on the couch. Well, what does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny let's have a two. I want I count three. That 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 boy needs therapy. He was white as a sheep. In Thomas Mater's book. He concludes that psychiatrists are just as likely as anyone else to be good or bad parents. My dad's a great parent, but he's also a terrific pain in the ass. If he thinks he knows something about you, something that might help, he can't stop himself from letting you know. It is his gift and my curse. Back at the hotel, I confront him on this, maybe for the first time. You feel that whenever I'm talking to you, every time I'm talking to you, I'm trying to analyze what you're saying? Well, you know what? Don't flatter yourself. You're not that hard to read. There will be no tearful apologies here. No breakthroughs. No big hugs. My dad's an analyst, and he can't turn it off. It goes along with his vision and his hearing. He doesn't see what the big deal is anyway. He's happy with how I turned out. You're another one of my therapeutic triumphs. I'm not sure which one of us he's complimenting, or if I even agree. But if I don't, it is made abundantly clear. That's my problem. I don't think it's fair for you to lay uh, your, your, your uh, inability to get real close to somebody at my feet. <laughs> no, it's not even about not getting to be able to get close to somebody. It's almost about being Maybe too... Maybe you should go ahead and get your head uh, read somewhere and find out what's going on with you. Maybe you do you some good. As usual, I will ignore my dad's advice. Of course, staying off the couch is no guarantee that I will be safe. This stuff is everywhere, and everybody uses it. People who used to be jerks are now just insecure. Tight-ass people are simply repressed, and everybody's ex has major issues. You think I'm exaggerating? Well, I think you're projecting. There's no escape. We are all the children of psychiatrists. My Incredible Shrinking Father, produced by Jesse Brown and Karen Levine for the CBC program, The Sunday Edition. Jesse's a humorist whose work has been seen in magazines, film festivals, and most importantly, of course, on the radio. So I'm just going to set it here, okay? Yeah. And then it can pick up whatever's happening. Okay. Now we come to my dad. Every once in a while, it's always fun to put my parents on the air. And when you have a dad like mine, who is such a character, it's just pretty easy to wrap a story around him. My dad's most famous moment, of course, on the air was when I recorded his snoring in the middle of the night. My mom was in the piece, too. Of course, she was the subject of another piece, this one about our identical feet, bunions and all. 
All right, well, maybe that's in the too much information category, but in 1995, I was working at NPR when a major anniversary in my family came up. Not the parents' wedding anniversary, but the 50th anniversary of my father's liberation from Mauthausen, a Nazi concentration camp. For that occasion, I wrote a different kind of essay about him for Morning Edition. My father loves to call me and tell me bad jokes, most of them dirty. I'm not particularly flattered by this, since he'll readily tell the same bad jokes to anyone who listen. Nine out of ten are too stupid to repeat, but every once in a while he hits the nail on the head. And when he does, he is his own best audience. He laughs and laughs until he reaches the point of suspended animation, bouncing up and down in his chair, making the noises of a human metronome. No kidding. (laughs) No. In his mind, there is nothing so sacred it can't be the butt of a good joke or a bad pun. Nothing irks him more than people who take themselves too seriously, or worse yet, have no sense of humor at all. This has always seemed incongruous to me in the context of my father's past. Fifty years ago today, he was liberated from Mauthausen, a concentration camp in Austria. I know the stories of his survival, how, like everyone else who lived, it was a combination of luck, circumstance, and complete fluke. How he was first in a labor camp, escaped, and was brought back. How, at the age of 18, he had to leave his father behind on a two-week-long death march because his father was wounded and couldn't keep up. He knew, when he left his father, that his father would be killed, as all the stragglers were. I know how he and his friends used to count the lice and bugs in the hems of their clothes to pass the time. I know how he weighed 95 pounds when the Americans liberated him. I know the stories, but I can't reconcile them with the man I know as my father. It's not my grandfather, my great-grandfather, or some other distant relative whose picture is yellowing on the walls of my parents' house. It's my father, the man who calls me up and asks, Sogveni, why is kissing so much like real estate? Everything is location, location, location. When I was in Europe once, I decided to go to Mauthausen and see it for myself. It was a place that you had to be extremely determined to go see, since it required numerous train rides and a a three-and-a-half-mile walk, mostly uphill, on a badly marked road. I walked through the barracks, the quarantine quarters, the gas chambers, the crematorium, and through all the memorials erected there by different countries. And still, while walking through the gruesome place, the thought of my father there as an 18-year-old was completely surreal to me. It seemed fitting to mourn the millions, but I just couldn't imagine his face among them. I once asked my father how he copes with all of the atrocities that are indelibly a part of his past, and he told me that he doesn't. But I know that's not true. He said that if he thought too much about it, he would go insane or at the very least, require extensive psychiatric care. So he definitely keeps it at a distance, but not so far that it's out of reach. He's happy to talk about it, as long as you make an appointment with him to do so. He's compulsively organized and likes things just so. His story takes about five hours to tell, and he does so with little emotion. He starts with the global conditions that preceded Hitler's rise to power, and, like a thorough textbook, moves through all the major historical milestones while he's telling his tale. But his past has by no means hardened him to the human condition or to the tragedies that surround him every day when he turns on the news. In his way, he seems to have found some balance, partly through his intellect. 
His bookshelves are lined with books on Hitler, World War II, and the Third Reich. In fact, we tease him that he won't read any book unless it has a swastika on the cover. My family has also said that maybe he keeps reading these books in the hopes he will find a different ending. I have no idea how other Mauthausen inmates who were liberated 50 years ago today found the room in their lives to move forward, but I know my father did. And when he calls me with his latest batch of bad jokes, usually when my mother is out of town and he gets a little lonely, I'm relieved that my father was able to put away the past, and I don't think it's so important to know exactly where it went. That was an essay I wrote for Morning Edition in 1995. So now I have to tell you about a very, very weird little thing. Most people have heard of the bigger concentration camps, Auschwitz, Bergen-Belsen, Treblinka, but many of these camps had offshoots that are lesser known, like Mauthausen, where my dad was until he was liberated by the Russian and American soldiers. But when I told our inimitable and intrepid resound producer Roman Mars about my dad, he recognized the name Mauthausen immediately. Why? Because his grandfather had been one of the American soldiers who liberated it. Actually, he came in before the rest of the soldiers looking for German snipers to make it safe for the Americans. And here we are, a generation or two later, in the same city, in the same building, in the same studio, slaving over a little radio show that we both love. Life, you know, it's just weird. Unfortunately, his grandfather's no longer alive. But let's just say that I feel like I owe Roman, say nothing of his ancestors, for a lot more than just being a great radio guy. Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.